structure the system doing the decarting continued. We are indeed forbidden to do our own will by scripture which said to us turn away from thy own will. And so too we beg of God in prayer that his will may be done in us. Rightly, therefore, are we taught not to do our own will. If we take heed to the warning of Scripture, there are ways which to men seem right, but the ends thereof lead to the depth of hell. Or again, when we tremble at what is said of the careless, they are corrupt and have become abominable in their pleasures. And in regard to the desires of the flesh, we must believe that God is always present to us, as the prophet said to the Lord, O Lord, all my desire is before thee. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. The monastic life is from the outset a turning away from one's own will. Following the very passage from Ecclesiasticus that St. Benedict cites, go not after thy lusts, but turn away from thy own will. This is without any doubt, the most difficult and the most necessary part of one's conversion of manners. Most men, having lived a single life, or even having lived as an ecclesiastic, come to the monastery already well accustomed to following their own fancies, to doing as they please, and to disengaging from things that challenge them beyond a certain point. This makes me uncomfortable. This is more than I can take on, that sort of thing. Uh, most men are accustomed <coughs> to disengaging from things that oblige them to go beyond a certain point, to make an effort. A man must not expect to continue doing his own will once he has entered the monastery. He will inevitably find himself faced with things that he would rather not have to do. And this daily and sometimes even hourly. But the same thing happens when a man marries a woman and then becomes a father. He finds himself faced with things that he would rather not have to do, changing dirty nappies and getting up in the middle of the night. And this daily and even hourly. Marriage and fatherhood require 
conversatio morum. Marriage and fatherhood require stability. The vocation to marriage and fatherhood includes conversatio morum, ask any married man, and stability. And this, in a degree no less heroic than that lived in the cloister. There are men who, especially in our culture, want to prolong the freedom of youth, not only past one's late teen years, but well into one's twenties and thirties, and in some places now even into one's forties, a man wants to hold on to his freedom making no commitment, binding himself permanently to no one and to no thing. This stunts a man's growth and uh, deprives him of the fruitfulness that only comes with commitment. This is a crisis in uh, contemporary society that is linked to uh, the widespread use of contraception. Contraception tends to make both men and women, but especially men, irresponsible in life choices. So we find men in their 40s having had a string of uh, girlfriends and relationships, uh, but the use of contraception uh, spares such a man the obligation to build a home and to welcome children, and such a man then remains immature. This is now the subject of sociological studies. Uh, there are certain countries in which the immaturity of men in their 40s is shocking. This because they are unwilling to practice, well, conversatio morum and stability. So we have to uh, consider this uh, question that is a, a, a question um, relative to the culture that surrounds us. On the other hand, I have many times encountered men in love with a certain monastic ideal. I say ideal. With the monastery that exists only in their heads and nowhere on this planet. Such men sometimes fail miserably when asked to renounce themselves, their cherished notions, their patterns of thinking and of praying and of relating to others. Such men must, sooner rather than later, die to the ideal that exists only in their heads, and accept the real that surrounds them. The humble discipline of the daily observance, even if they judge it imperfect and lax, or, on the other hand, too strict, 
something else. It all comes down to that word spoken to Mother Mechtilde. Submit and adore. Ascent to the real. Ascent to what is. That is the point of departure of turning away from one's own will and entering into the marvelous designs of God. The man who resists death to his own notions will never become a monk. He may be a pious and edifying dilettante of monastic history. He may be a well of knowledge concerning things rubrical and liturgical. He may be a walking encyclopedia of Benedictine trivia, but he will not be a monk. St. Benedict says, rightly therefore, are we taught not to do our own will, if we take heed to the warning of Scripture. There are ways which to men seem right, but the ends thereof lead to the depths of hell. St. Benedict speaks today of the desires of the flesh. Do not think for a minute that he refers here only to sexual desires. He is speaking of all the desires of the old man. Some of these desires, the desire, for instance, to dominate, the desire to have one's own way, uh, the desire to do as one pleases, when one pleases, in the way one pleases. These are all desires of the flesh. Some of these desires we think long dead and buried, and all of a sudden, when we enter the monastery, we discover that they are stirred from their long hibernation and have lost nothing of their vigor. It may be as simple as a brother being asked to do a task one way rather than another. A simple thing in itself. And yet this can stir up the monster of self-will and in hibernation. And all of a sudden, uh, that monster rears its ugly head. What? You want me to do it this way and not that way? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I can give you many, many examples of this. And, and the lives of the Desert Fathers are full of this sort of thing. <clears throat> you all know the story because I, I, I recounted so often of the monk who went to his uh, spiritual father and said, Abba, uh, I, I've now come to understand that the reason why I fly into fits of rage is because I have to live with all of these imperfect men. I ask you then to allow me to go far into the desert and to live in the strictest solitude and in that way I will be certain of no longer flying into fits of rage. I will live in peace and God will be glorified and I will be happy. And spiritual father said, have it your way, go, 
go into the desert, live alone, uh, and see what happens. And so the monk, quite pleased with himself, having uh, wrenched this authorization out of his spiritual father, packed up his belongings in a little sack, and uh, pushed his way far into the desert, and he said, that gang of Egypts anymore. You know, I can now organize my life as I see fit. I can truly have a prayerful life, a holy life, and no one will interfere with my practice of virtue. And it came that he ran out of water and had to go to the well in the oasis. And so he took his pitcher crockery, his earthenware pitcher, and he carried it to the well, and as he went to lower it into the well to obtain his water, he knocked the pitcher against the stone edge of the well, and it shattered. And with this, he cursed the well, he cursed the pitcher, he flew into a rage, and then didn't know what to do. So he picked up pieces of the broken picture and sat down by the side of the well, waiting for his rage to pass. Then he made his way back to the Sodomium, and he asked to see his spiritual father. And he walked in, looking very sheepish, holding the shattered fragments of his water pitcher. And Father spiritual said to him, Son, why do you look so troubled? What happened? And the poor monk recounted what happened. And the abbot said, No matter. Now, return to the common life. Follow the common service. And he said, Your, your fits of rage, you carry them in you wherever you go. And so this is a very interesting story because it, it demonstrates that there are no geographical solutions to uh, our uh, spiritual combats. Sometimes a monk or even, God forbid, a nun will think all my problems come from having to live in this cloister with these men or these ladies. If only I could live in another cloister, I would be so much happier. I would be better understood. I wouldn't have to suffer all of these contradictions and uh, misunderstandings. And so uh, there have always been monks and nuns who think that happiness lies elsewhere. And so they move from one place to another in search of happiness and never find it because they carry the source of their unhappiness deep inside. When St. Benedict speaks of the desires of the flesh, uh, he's referring to the desire to spend oneself and one's time 
one sees fit. He's referring to the desire to control other persons, to direct the course of things, to wield influence, to hold power, to claim proprietorship over oneself and over all that pertains to one's person. All of these are the desires of the flesh. Of course, at certain hours and seasons of life, the monk will experience sexual desires, emotional desires, and desires to gratify one's lower appetites. One must acknowledge such desires. It's, it's not good to push them down, to pretend that one doesn't experience them. No, one must acknowledge such desires, but it is best not to analyze them, nor to indulge in introspection. In the end, I know of no better way of dealing with these desires than that set forth by the psalmist and reiterated by St. Benedict. In regard to the desires of the flesh, we must believe that God is always present to us. I find it very touching that St. Benedict uses that phrase. He doesn't say that God is always present. He says, Nobis Deum credamus semper esse presente. Nobis. That's a very important little word. He doesn't merely say God is present. God is always present to us. Semper nobis presente. As the prophet saith to the Lord, O Lord, all my desire is before thee. This is a very simple and efficacious form of prayer. To go before our Lord and to say just this, all my desire is before thee. It's a very perfect way of making one's adoration. To go before our Lord in the sacrament of his love, all my desire is before thee. Our Lord sees the whole context. There's no need to explain, no need to elaborate. He knows the history. He receives whatever we offer him and turns all things to good. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together unto good, to such as according to his purpose. 